The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. The Oscar shortlist is right around the corner, and recently we've had the good fortune to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's new documentaries that are in the hunt for an Academy Award. These include Margaret Brown, director of Descendant, who talked to us about her beautifully layered and timely portrait of the descendants of the slave ship Clotilda. We also spoke with Tamana Ayazi and Marcel Metalzifin, directors of In Her Hands, which follows the courageous young mayor of an Afghan town who fights for women's rights against the backdrop of the country's takeover by the Taliban. And we had a chance to speak with Elvis Mitchell, director of Is That Black Enough For You, his celebration of black cinema in the late 1960s and the 70s. Finally, Chris Smith joined us to discuss his new documentary, Senior, featuring Robert Downey Jr. in tribute to his late father, the pioneering filmmaker Robert Downey Sr. Be sure to listen to these conversations at our feed and watch these films now all available on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Matthew Heinemann, the director of Retrograde. The film had its world premiere at the 2022 Telluride Film Festival and then went on to screen at other fall festivals, including the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival and Doc NYC, where it won the producing award in the shortlist category. Matthew Heinemann was nominated for an Oscar for his 2015 documentary Cartel Land, for which he won the Primetime Emmy for Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking. He won the Cinema Eye Honors Award for Outstanding Achievement in Production for his 2021 film, The First Wave. Matthew's other award-winning films include City of Ghosts and Escape Fire. I had the privilege of talking to Matthew last year on Top Docs about his extraordinary documentary, The First Wave. That film followed a group of doctors and nurses at a New York hospital during the first three months of COVID. So basically ground zero during the pandemic, which makes it interesting when you think about his new film, Retrograde, which also takes place in ground zero. In this case, ground zero of the war in Afghanistan. Retrograde actually predates the first wave in terms of the planning and pre-production because it took years for Matthew and his team to get permission to embed with the Green Berets in Afghanistan. Both films are incredibly immersive and harrowing experiences. And Matthew, as he talks about, really committed to these kinds of films, ones where you go beyond the issues to explore the human factor. He exposes you to some amazing people up close and personal, and in so doing, gives them a you-are-here feeling. There's really nothing else that can compare with that experience. Of course, with that approach does come an element of risk, and that comes up in the interview, as does the fact that he really had to make a big pivot with this film once the U.S. made the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. Of course, I encourage you to watch the film and listen to my interview with Matthew. After a November theatrical run, Retrograde, which is being released by National Geographic Documentary Films, debuted on the National Geographic channel on December 8th and is now available for streaming on Disney Plus and on Hulu. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at Top Docs Pod and Twitter also at Top Docs Pod. 
And now, my conversation with Matthew Heinemann, the director of Retrograde. Matthew Heinemann, welcome back to Top Docs. Thanks for having me. You bet. And congratulations on Retrograde. It's incredibly powerful and I would say important and timely and people should watch it and I hope that they will. So let's talk about you for just a moment. It was almost exactly a year ago that we were here in Zoom for a Top Docs interview talking about your extraordinary film, The First Wave, about a group of doctors, nurses, and patients in a New York hospital during the first three months of the pandemic. And I'm not sure what the overlap was, if any, between finishing that film and working on Retrograde, but can you talk about going from The First Wave to Retrograde and what it was like as a filmmaker to occupy those two worlds? Yeah, it's certainly been a heavy couple of years um, between these two films and obviously just our world in general. Um, And ironically, actually, Retrograde preceded the first wave. We started the process of making Retrograde long before COVID happened. It took us several years to get access to the Green Beret community and to get permission to embed with this Green Beret team in Afghanistan. And then I... COVID happened, I shot the first wave and made the first wave, edited the first wave, promoted the first wave. And during all that, I was going back and forth to Afghanistan as well. So yeah, it's been an intense few years. How did you mentally make the shift between the two? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I did that necessarily. I'm not sure I successfully shifted. I think, yeah. They 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 both had a pretty profound impact on me mentally. Not, not sure I necessarily felt a shift between the two. It felt a consistent, heavy presence between the two. The first minute of Retrograde has four audio clips in succession from the four U.S. presidents, George W. Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden, whose presidencies are the four that span the 20 years of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. What point were you trying to make by including these four clips right at the top of the film. I constantly get criticized for not giving context in my docs. I really, on an almost molecular level, believe that context is a slippery slope, and the more context you give an audience, the more they want. And to me, that takes away from the visceral experience of watching a film, at least the type of types of films that I make. My goal is to take these large, amorphous subjects drug war in Mexico, opiate epidemic, human trafficking, ISIS in Syria, COVID, war in Afghanistan. And these issues are plastered across headlines or inundated with stats and information. And I feel like my job, amongst other jobs, is trying to humanize these issues, trying to put a human face to them, trying to personalize them, trying to make you feel like you are there feeling and viscerally and emotionally. And so I think the succession of the four presidents wasn't necessarily the succession of the four presidents at the top of the film wasn't really an attempt to give informational context per se is more showing the time span of which this war has elapsed it's the longest war in u.s history it's two decades of being there and so when we land at the end of that long panning shot of the mountains surrounding kabul 
on the ground there at the airport in those final days, which is the sort of cold open to the film. I just wanted you to know sort of the, the time that spanned to get us to that moment. Yeah, it also was just incredibly efficient storytelling because in that one minute through those four clips, I almost felt here's everything you need to know about U.S. foreign policy as it relates to Afghanistan in the last 20 years. It just really showed the evolution and in some ways the de-evolution of that policy. Yeah, and I think another thing that I try to do with, I guess, all my films, but particularly in Retrograde, is these issues are just hunted around like football in Washington. And these decisions are made by, in this case, four men in a White House. But they have profound impacts on people, human beings, families, husbands, wives, sisters, brothers. And that's the world that we land in, in the film. And it's so easy to feel like these conflicts are so far away, that they're so distant. And as everyday Americans, it's so easy to sort of metaphorically change the channel, not engage with these issues. And I think I'm trying to help create this sort of empathetic connection to this conflict that feels so far away, but really isn't. Yeah, and pretty much right away after we see that plane take off, we then see shots of the chaos at the Kabul airport in August 2021 that took place during the U.S. evacuation of people following the Taliban's victory. And then we go back eight months to January 2021 to Camp Shorab in Helmand province, this is where we meet the film's main protagonist, General Sami Sadat, who's a commander of the Afghan army, leading a unit of 15,000 Afghan army troops. We also meet a team of 12 U.S. Army Green Berets who are advising Sadat's unit. And one of the Green Berets talks about how General Sadat and some of the other Afghan army leaders have that, quote, warrior spirit. They have our DNA, he says. One of the questions, you know, hanging over Af Afghanistan throughout the 20-year U.S. war, and even more so, I would say, in the last year, six months, is this idea that Afghan soldiers wouldn't fight, weren't willing to fight, or somehow lacked this warrior spirit, especially in contrast to the Taliban soldiers. Do you think this is largely a myth, or what's your take on that? I'm definitely not a policy expert. I witnessed what I witnessed. But in terms of what I witnessed, I'd say that is an unfair characterization. Certainly a huge part of this story from a geopolitical level. Again, this film is my film is not an attempt to figure out who did what, right or wrong, how we got here. There's no analysis of pointing fingers or doing that. So I'm just speaking as a human being, not as the filmmaker of retrograde. But there there are a myriad of reasons as to why the, the Afghan army lost to the Taliban. One of them certainly was the lack of morale after the U.S. left. There was a huge loss of morale in the belief that they could actually beat the Taliban without the U.S. presence. And amongst the ranks of the Taliban, me, amongst the ranks of the Afghan army, there certainly was a lack of faith. And of course, there there are places and people and units that may have not had the will to fight per se, but. That it was definitely not the experience that I witnessed with General Sadat and his men in Helmand. He fought until the very end. And part of the narrative tension of the film is that metaphorically, every neon sign was basically blaring, saying, stop, give up, surrender, you're going to lose. And General Sadat just failed to accept that. He had this unwavering faith and belief 
that maybe just maybe if you held on to Helmand or Lashkar, the capital of Helmand, they could hold on to southern Afghanistan, maybe hold the country together. And, and you know, that stayed with him until the very end. You mentioned that you sought to get permission to embed with the U.S. Green Army Green Berets. And then obviously conditions changed in the country. At what point did you meet, become aware of General Sadat? And what were the early conversations you had with the Americans about getting permission to film at the base and to make, and basically to be able to make this film. Well, that was complicated. You know, I'm going to do it again, which is just to say, can you talk about how you first became aware of General Sadat and then shifted the film once the Green Rays and the U.S. Army left to making a film that was in large part a portrait of him? The original intent of the film, going back like years and years, I had this very cliched question that I wanted to explore of why we fight wars and trying to understand and humanize that experience. I started reaching out to various contacts I had in the military. I got connected to my amazing producing partner, Galen McNally, who also had some deep connections in the Green Beret community. And I think the original intent was actually to just embed with them and humanize and trying to understand this community. And... It took a long time to get permission. By the time we actually deployed with them, it turned out to be the final deployment to Afghanistan. And so the story shifted even before we started filming, really, to being like, wow, actually, we could tell the story about the end of the longest war in U.S. history through the prism of this deployment. Two months into filming, President Biden pulled out our troops. Once again, left with, what is this film we're making? What are we saying? What are we telling? Because certainly the story was not over. So General Sadat, had been working with the Green Berets intimately. You know, we, we had lots of footage of him on his own and working with the Green Berets. And so I reached back out to him and asked him, would you be open to us coming back and spending time with you? Would you be open to us embedding with you and your men and shifting the lens to focus on you? And he thought about it and eventually said yes. There, there's a scene pretty early on in the film that, that comes just after we hear of an Afghan army helicopter being shot down. There's casualties. One of the general's guards is killed. And then we see the general walking through this kind of makeshift hospital where the wounded are being treated. There's six seriously injured men, but there's only room for four on the U.S. Army helicopter to medevac them. But the general manages to make a phone call and he convinces someone in authority to give him the okay to get these other two evacuated. What's interesting here is that it shows that being a good general in Afghanistan, maybe anywhere, seems to depend at least as much on one's ability to work the system and go around the rules when necessary to get what you need for your men. What impressed you about General Sadat in this regard? Certainly what you just said was a very clear and intriguing part of what made him the leader that he was. I found him endlessly fascinating. He sort of at least broke my preconceived notions of what a two-star general would be. He's short in stature. He's soft-spoken. He's, yeah, he's just not who I thought necessarily would think a two-star general would be. But he's incredibly forceful. He has enormous faith in, in the decisions he's making. Psychologically, it's quite interesting to be in charge of 15,000 men and women and making decisions that, that impact human lives. 
you have to really believe in what you're doing, obviously. That first scene that you just mentioned was a sort of illustration of his ability and the desire to always do what he thought he needed to do to be able to succeed. In this case, help his men, get them care. But, you know, that obviously was sort of an allegory for what he did constantly every day, every minute, every hour. People often say that, you know, documentaries are made in the edit. But with a film like this, the cinematography is paramount. And there are three cinematographers listed in the credits. There's, in addition to you, there's Tim Grushka and Olivier Sarbil. Can you talk about how you worked as a team and about the work done by Tim and Olivier? Obviously, this isn't the first film I've made or the first, first film I shot. And the look and feel of the film is and always is quite important to me. So we spoke for weeks and months, really, of how I like to shoot. I never worked with him or Olivier before. They're both incredibly talented shooters and producers and directors themselves. They made their own films as well. And obviously, when you shoot, when multiple shooters, the key is to create a continuity of feeling and vision. And so, yeah, we spoke for weeks and months about how I wanted this to look and feel. And there are times when we're shooting alone. There's times when we're shooting together. The key was creating that sort of continuity of feel across all the various moments. But I think one of the things, one of the motifs in the film is certainly holding on faces for a very long time. And that was something that was very much, it wasn't an accident. It was contemplated while shooting. It's also a byproduct of shooting in a foreign language. None of us speak fluent posture Dari. So while we may understand the pages metaphorically, we don't understand the periods and commas. When you're shooting in English, people often chase dialogue and you want to get that line on camera. But when you're shooting in a foreign language, you know, you don't have that luxury. And I don't even believe that you should be doing that anyway. But you're forced to shoot on based on emotion. And so that's why in the film, you really feel these long reaction shots. And in many ways, the face doesn't lie. The face can speak volumes to a certain situation, whether it's being in the room as President Biden you know, announces that he's pulling out our troops and seeing the Green Bay's faces, that they speak more than three hours of interview you could ever say. Or in the subsequent scene, as the Green Berets tell their Afghan counterparts that they're leaving, uh, which is obviously incredibly emotive and seen all the way up until the final moments at the airport. The film ends on this, I think, six-second shot of a woman staring through a fence at the American soldiers in her eyes, in her face, in her body language. She wrote an essay for us. There also are some really intense scenes of warfare, of action, and I would say this is also a Matthew Heinemann hallmark. And there's one about halfway through the film after the Taliban have overtaken a base and the general orders a helicopter to resupply the troops. And we see footage from the helicopter itself, it seems, as it's taking incoming fire. And this is intercut with footage of the general and his staff communicating. I don't know if they're communicating with the command center or, or even directly with the helicopter. Can you just take us through, like, were you shooting in both places? How did you get this footage on the helicopter? So that was me shooting in the helicopter. And Tim and Olivier were down in the command center shooting with General Sadat. I think a lot of people think that I am a thrill seeker or, or get off on danger. 
that certainly is not the case. I mean, these films have had a profound impact on me. I suffer from PTSD. I have, I have nightmares often. And yeah, it's always about the story for me. It's never about these moments. I think if there's any through line that I guess it's more I'm attracted to human beings who are facing massive stakes with great import and how human beings react to pressure in a variety of different environments. And really the, the sort of exploring the power of the human spirit in these really tough moments and times. That's what I'm attracted to, not these dangerous moments or getting shot at. I don't get off on that. But certainly I found myself in those environments, like the scene you're describing, being on a Black Hawk mission with the Afghan army as they're trying to resupply a town. Goresh, Goresh was surrounded by the Taliban. They were needing supplies. If this resupply mission didn't happen, they were likely going to fall to the Taliban. If this town fell to the Taliban, they're one step closer to taking over Lashkar, the capital of Helmand. And if that happened, then they'd obviously take over the province. And it was a very strategically important province for Afghanistan. You often think about the risk and reward of these moments, and it's really important to the story, despite the risk, despite knowing that likely we were going to get shot at. That was a very strong likelihood. It wasn't necessarily a surprise. But when you're in a helicopter and during those moments, it's extremely extremely loud. Like you, you can barely hear anything, but it's very disorienting. In addition to that, it's pitch black and I'm shooting with night vision. So you, not only can you barely hear anything besides the roar of the helicopter, you can't see anything besides this blaring bright green image in your, in my case, my left eye. As we descended into this town, the, the helicopter started to weave and bob and I knew something was wrong. I couldn't hear the rockets that were being shot at us. And then subsequently, they started returning fire. And, and obviously, I knew something was not right. And it was, you know, it was terrifying. And in those moments, I, I have zero agency. I can't fly a helicopter. I don't have a gun. I don't know how to use a gun. I don't want to know how to use a gun. So the only thing that I can control is my camera. And that's what I choose to focus on. I, you know, I focus on focusing. I focus on aperture, on, on making sure the record button's on. And that's what really calms me down in those very intense moments. So you mentioned that you're not a thrill seeker taking undue risk, and I did not mean to imply that I think you do, because I, oh, no. I don't. But there's a couple of other scenes in vehicles on the ground. There's one where you're traveling with the general, and he's told there's maybe a suicide bomber coming after him. There's another one where you go with him to the front lines. And as you say, once you're in, you're in. You have no agency. There's no turning back. So can you tell us, what is the risk assessment process during the making of this film? And what's the criteria for deciding, okay, this particular situation is dangerous, but we think it's an acceptable level of risk, but this other situation is too dangerous and we're not going to go into that. You know, everyone has their own red line that you're not supposed to cross. And I think the key in these environments, especially the longer and longer you're on the ground in a war zone, the sort of more likelihood is you start to become complacent with the danger. And that's the key is not becoming complacent with the danger, continuing to have that intellectual rigor of making these decisions. That being said, when you're embedded and you're in, you know, that was me in the car with the general going to the front lines. Tim was in a car nearby. You don't really have a lot of agency in those situations. There's no security team you have with you. There's no like, button you can press to eject and get out of there. We are completely beholden to the reality that they're living in. And so 
you sort of, at some point, also just have to make the decision accepting that you are going to endure whatever they endure. And that doesn't mean you don't have plans. That doesn't mean you don't have plans in place in case someone gets injured. Obviously, we're wearing protective gear and flak jackets and helmets and have gone through safety and medical courses, to, you know, if we get injured. You do all the precautions you can to be ready to operate in those environments. But on some level, it's not up to you once you're actually there. One thing I found interesting is it occurred to me as I'm watching this film and the general and his aides are becoming increasingly isolated as the Taliban are gaining more territory and becoming more aggressive toward taking over various bases and cities, is that the general is facing a similar decision-making process that you as a director are facing, which is, you know, as things get really hairy, like, are we going to have to leave where we are and fall back to a safer location? So I'm just curious, you know, what conversations you had with your team about, are we maybe going to have to just fall back to Kabul? You know, we're constantly having those conversations amongst ourselves, amongst our team back in the States, amongst, you know, we had a security team in Kabul that was looking over us and providing intelligence to us about the sort of geopolitical nature of the conflict and what was sort of being channeled amongst the intel channels in the country. But again, when you're on the ground there, you have to make decisions based on the reality of what you're seeing, take into account all the stuff you're hearing from around you. But yes, of course, we have plans in place to be able to step back if we can, but it just depends on whatever that given environment is, how and where and when to execute them. You mentioned earlier that the general is somebody who was so committed to the cause and to the army that he was just going to continue to fight for as long as he possibly could and to lead his men. But there is a period where things start to go bad and we start to see his military aides around him begin to question the logic, I think, of continuing to fight in the face of what appears to be an increasingly likely defeat. One of the incredible things about the film is you do have this relationship with the other men around the general. And so we hear some of their conversations, we see their faces. And I just was curious to know more about whether there was kind of an evolution in where you were pointing the camera once the military situation got so bad and this question couldn't help but be raised by everyone, you know, we need to get out of here, don't we? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're, when you're shooting the way that I shoot, which is often sort of 14, 16, 18, 20 hours a day when, in, in these environments, we were basically waking up with him and going to bed with him and shooting everything in between. And obviously... As trust was gained amongst him and his men, we started to focus the cameras on people around him, not just him, because so much of the drama was playing out, not just with him, but with his men. And obviously, I think one of the scenes you're pointing to is a scene when they're sitting on the porch in, in the governor's compound, which is where he was holed up in Lashkar in the capital of Helmand, which they, he had gone to after leaving his base, Camp Shorab, fearing that Lashkar was going to follow the Taliban. And over the course of this sort of moment of the film, in the second act of the film, you start to feel the fight with the Taliban getting ever closer. At first, you hear gunfire in the distance, and you don't pay much attention to it. And then uh, on this particular scene, it's popping all around us. 
And General Sadat goes inside to take a phone call and two men that were working with him, for him, were sort of quietly whispering. And again, that's one of those moments. Like we didn't know exactly what was being said, but we knew they were obviously saying something that they didn't want him to hear, which is their fear and trepidation of what's going to happen. The Taliban's right over there. What happens if they enter the city? We're all going to die. And to me, it's those moments. That's why you shoot like this. That's why you have to shoot committed to, for better or for worse, I mean, it's really hard to shoot films this way. But it's those moments that you just can't script or write, that you have to be there for. And they speak volumes to the situation. Obviously, we could sit there and interview General Stott about the fear and interview his men about the fear of the Taliban coming towards us. But that scene speaks volumes of what it actually truly felt like. And that's my goal always, is to make you feel like, what if you're one of those guys? What would you do? What would you feel? What if you're General Sadat? What if you're on that porch? I think it, it allows you to just have a much greater understanding of the situation. I would get the hell out of there, but that's just me. <laughs> we certainly were wondering, yeah, when we were going to get the hell out of there, because it, it was, and obviously, crescendo to that final scene in Las Rigar when the bullets start to fly over our heads and he's trying to call in airstrikes and they're not coming in and two sniper bullets whiz past our heads. And that's when, you know, we, we got out of there. I think that's the only time when I think I saw him look at the camera and say, Hey, you guys get back. Yeah. That was me on the fence on the wall with him. And it was, yeah, it was terrifying. I hadn't eaten at all that day and had been up for, I think, almost 24 hours and was carrying a lot of gear because it was sort of unclear whether we were going to leave or stay. And so I was carrying most of the gear on me. And as, after the cyber bullets fly over our heads, he sort of runs across this skinny little wall back into protection. And I'm sort of left there with the camera. And I was like, I'm not going to die from getting hit in the head by a bullet necessarily right now. I'm going to die because I'm so lightheaded that I'm going to fall off this wall. I think it's pretty pretty lame way to die after going through all that we went through. Thankfully, you you made it off that wall, Matthew. So at the end of the film, we learned that General Sadat was forced to leave the country and that the U.S. refused to help him. And so he ended up going to the U.K. I, I just was curious if you had any more information about why that was, why the U.S. didn't help him. Given his close ties with the U.S. military, you would think that the U.S. could have, should have done more to bring him to the U.S., which is, sounds like is where he wanted to come with his family. I, I wish I could answer that question. I can't, and I don't know the answer to that question. I take it you're as disturbed as, as I am. That we didn't help him. Yeah, and the film premiered at Telluride. He wasn't allowed to come. Our film is being released today in theaters. We tried to get him to be here for that. Unfortunately, our country's not allowed him to enter. There's a scene about a third of the way into the film that takes place just before the U.S. troops, the Green Berets, leave the base in Helmand. And one of the U.S. guys ruminates on, quote, the end. He says, I'm sure it's the end of something, but what is it? The end of an era? The end of an operation? I don't know. Only history will tell us exactly what it is the end of. I'm sure you were thinking about endings when you were trying to figure out how to end your movie. Can you tell us how you landed on the ending that you did. In, in mid-August, planning on going back to spend time with General Sadat. Experts, pundits were saying, 
maybe two months, three months, at most six months until the Taliban took over. And so, you know, we wanted to be there. And by the time we got to Dubai to fly into Kabul to eventually meet up with him, things started to fall a bit faster. And we got on a, on a flight. And as we descended into the Valley of Kabul, the pilot got on the intercom and said, we can't land, there's a plane on the tarmac. We were so low that our phones started to ping and ping and ping, 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 with news alerts that the Taliban had taken over Kabul and that that plane on the tarmac was the president fleeing. And the pilot was very nervous, very scared. He refused to land. We went back to Dubai. And I just felt like it was the greatest journalistic failure of my entire career, greatest filmmaking failure of my career. We'd spent eight months in this country telling this story about the final chapter of the longest war in US history. And we, you know, we could have been there on this final day that it fell with this protagonist, General Sadat, that we had spent months with, who's at the center of it all. And I'm sitting in a hotel in Dubai. Just what if we got on a plane earlier? And just so much self-loathing. And then basically spent every waking hour trying to figure out how to get back in Afghanistan, which we did several days later. By that time, the general had been forced to flee because he was under enormous threat by the Taliban. And so we're, we arrive at the airport, again, trying to figure out what is this story we're telling? What is this film? Because we're not news. We're not, I'm not like filing a report to CNN or BBC or whatever. And with every door that closes, a door opens. With every failure, it comes an opportunity. And in this case, it was the opportunity to open up the aperture of the film to show the civilians that the Green Braves were fighting for, to show the civilians that General Sadat and his men were fighting for, that at that point in our filming process, we hadn't seen. And to see this terrible tragedy, terrible human tragedy play out at the airport, just that became this final act, this final chapter, both of the war and of our film. We made the decision when we landed to to go outside the wire, quote unquote, to leave the airport, not knowing whether we'd be able to get back in, not knowing whether we'd be able to get on a plane. I really wanted to see what the city felt like with the Taliban in control. I wanted to see what the gates where the civilians were trying to enter the airport felt like from their perspective, as opposed to from the inside perspectives. And so we were going around from gate to gate, filming in different places and ended up filming a Taliban meeting with their senior leadership. And... I'll never for in my life forget, like I, I've become quite emotional in making these films over the years, certainly cried in airplanes and film festivals and doing sometimes occasionally doing press and other things. And I've never cried while filming, but that scene at the Abbey Gate with thousands of Afghan civilians packed like sardines in a four foot sewage ditch as 18 year old Marines who weren't even alive when the Twin Towers fell, as the Taliban, 100 yards away, was watching us at gunpoint, as ISIS, who I covered quite deeply in another film that I had made, was circling in suicide vests waiting to attack, which happened 12 hours later in the very spot they were filming. It just was so surreal. I, I had tears streaming down my face. I kept having to wipe my lens down. And all I could think about was, what have we done? I know that from the audience perspective, we were there with you when you were filming those scenes. We felt your tears and we shed them ourselves. So thanks very much, Matthew. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate your time. 
finally, what's up next for you, Matthew? I'm currently editing another film, completely different type of film, about the musician John Batiste. Oh, wow. Terrific. Looking forward to that. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary, Hidden Gem? I'm going to go hidden based on date, perhaps hidden to a new generation of filmmakers. A film that had a really profound impact on me was Murderball. I believe it came out in 2005 or so, which is when I graduated from college. And I didn't study film, I didn't go to film school, I sort of stumbled into making docs, and it really had a profound impact on me, just showing that docs could be as interesting as narrative films. They could have three-act structure, they could have protagonists and antagonists and characters that pop off the screen as much as any movie star. Yeah, it just had a pretty big influence on how I viewed the documentary form. 